1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state of the art time traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the podcast. This week, I got to speak with Dr. Kathleen Coleman, the James Loeb Professor of Classics at Harvard University. She also serves as the Chair of the Classics Department and as a Senior Research Curator for the Harvard Art Museums. Her many research interests include Roman mosaics, ancient arena spectacles, Latin literature, and poetry. It was a real treat to be able to welcome the first true Latinist to the podcast and a pleasure to dig into the other side of the classical field for a change. So take care, stay safe, and I hope you all enjoy this episode and I will speak to you all next time. All right, well, I wanted to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast, Dr. Coleman. I was very, very excited um, because you are actually the first Latinist to make an appearance. I've had uh, several Hellenists and some Egyptologists, but um, I, I was really excited to get the other side uh, of classical studies since it is pretty much the biggest one. So um, so I just wanted to quickly start with, um how did you get involved with classics? Um, because it's such a, an individual journey for everyone. Um, and I just, I really love hearing how different people fall into this really niche subject.
3: Sure, well, um, I was born and grew up in Zimbabwe which is um, in Central Africa. And uh, I did Latin at school and loved it. And then went to uh, university Uh, to do a law degree and to the University of Cape Town, actually. And in those days, it was um, obligatory to study Latin for the law degree. And um, so I carried on with Latin and it was the best subject I did in in the first year of the the BALLB. And uh, so I then decided to shelve the law degree. I still haven't done it. And uh, I picked up Greek at that point. carried on with modern languages as well and then I had to choose and uh, decided to go with ancient languages. Ended up back in my home city of Harare where I did a like an MA it's actually called an honours Degree and then I was very fortunate. Um, I was encouraged to apply for uh, entry to a doctoral program in England and I managed to do that and um, And then I was offered a position back in my old department in Cape Town. So it was just very serendipitous that I followed um, what really fascinated me. And I never had any idea that it would lead to a lifelong career where I feel I'm one of the few lucky people in the world who gets paid to pursue their hobby essentially.
2: Yes, no, it's it's such a wonderful thing to be able to find something early on that you love and then be able to pursue it. Um, I sort of discovered a love for the ancient world when I was in sixth grade um, that happened to be through a wonderful sixth grade teacher um, who taught. um, It was sort of the it was it was labeled as a general history class, but she really stressed the Greek and Roman units and the Egyptology units. So she would come up with really fun things. So for sixth graders dressing up in fake togas, which were made out of bed sheets, was kind of a uh, such a privilege. Um, and so I can see that you are interested in so many different facets within uh, Roman culture. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to sort of hone down the love of just generally uh, the ancient world and Roman things and how you focused on mosaic and spectacle and um, some of the other wonderful
3: things? Yes, of course. Well, um, I was primarily trained as a as a a philologist, so a, a literary person, essentially. But very early on, I got very interested in the material world of the Romans. And uh, for my uh, doctoral dissertation, I wrote a commentary on a book of poems published in the year 95 uh, under the Emperor Domitian. And these were what we call occasional poems. So poems about people's birthdays and the building of a new road and things like that. And there was a lot of social history behind those poems and indeed quite a lot of material culture. Uh, The poem about the making of the road uses all sorts of technical language to describe the curbstones and so forth and I had a whale of a time uh, going off to, to Italy to trace the uh, surviving remnants of that road and work out what these different technical terms were talking about. And um, the interest in, in mosaics uh, really stems from um, when I was doing my degree in, in Harare because one of my teachers had uh, taken lots and lots of photographs in the ancient, what survives from the ancient world and uh, did a lot of school visits. And I started tagging along and learning how to, you know, package things for, for school kids. And all these marvelous photographs just seemed to enliven everything so much. And the mosaics in particular. So um, to me, the, mos- the mosaic, um, record from the ancient world is kind of like a photograph album almost because so many of the artifacts of daily life are represented uh, on these mosaics wheelbarrows and garlands and things like that and um, they're so durable uh, that you know even today we have so many of these floors remaining and it's really exciting to to think about little kids you know, playing marbles on these floors and using the geometric patterns as sort of marble tracks and things like that. Um, it, to me, the mosaic is one of the most immediate uh, media, which uh, puts the ancient world into technicolor, if you like. So anyway, that's one of my interests, but then the arena developed because after I published the book from my dissertation, I did a sideways, sideways move in the same period uh, to work on the poet Marshall, who left us 15 books of epigrams. A lot of them are short and very witty. Well, I mean, they're all short because they're epigrams. A lot of them are very witty and some of them are rather um, uh, sort of rude and, uh, um, and some of them are very sycophantic addressed to uh, various emperors. And it was um, the little collection at the beginning of Marshall's uh, uh, oeuvre that particularly caught my attention because it had all these very elliptical poems about arena spectacles. And so I got involved in trying to figure out what was going on uh, in these poems. And that uh, sparked my interest in the arena much more broadly. And I think I've now um, written my final article about the arena, but every time I think that I've covered the the last uh, related topic, something else comes to mind. And I then write another article. Uh, But that's been exciting because it's given me a, you know, a new mission when I go to um, Italy and the Mediterranean, I go on a sort of amphitheater crawl from one amphitheater to the next. They, they, of course, they have a basic design, but they're all individually tailored to the topography and to the needs of the community and so on. And you can learn a huge amount by really studying these architectural remains and figuring out uh, what they were used for.
2: Yes, and when I was an undergrad, I believe in my junior year, I don't actually remember what year, Um, but at some point, um, the University of Missouri, where I did my undergrad, offered an ancient sport and spectacles class that sort of combined uh, the ancient Olympics and the gladiatorial arena. And I think most students in there would say, oh, well, I watched a film or I like TV or I just like the idea of it or something very common that you would probably hear from a bunch of uh, young students. Um, And I will admit, I definitely went into that class because I, I love film and TV and a bunch of other things. But I was really surprised that within the class itself, Um, My professor went so much more in depth into not just, you know, the categorizing of, well, this is what they looked like, this is what they wore, they fought with, and these are some of the instruments used, but he went so much into the architecture and the history of the Colosseum and the building itself. So I was just kind of wondering Is there a certain aspect to um, ancient spectacles and and the arena that interests you more? Is it the architecture, the history or just the games themselves?
3: Well, I think it's um, their function in society. Um, I, I believe that the most fundamental fact about the ancient world to grasp is the distinction between slave and free. And you see that playing out so clearly in the arena because gladiators either were slaves or they were assimilated to the status of slaves by voluntarily taking an oath of submission, actually submitting uh, the control over their lives uh, to their uh, owner trainer. And uh, this means that they were then property and you can dispose of your property as you will. And um, there's a very nice illustration of how this plays out in society from a very uh, small uh, section in a legal text from the second century, where the author Gaius is trying to explain the difference between hire and purchase. And he says, think about gladiators. If you rent a gladiator for your games and he goes back to barracks with a couple of nicks and scrapes, but is basically okay, you pay 20 denarii for him. But uh, if um, he's so badly injured that he can never fight again, or if he's even killed, then you pay a 50 times markup, you pay a thousand dinari for him. And he says, that's the difference between hire and purchase. And that is so fascinating that he uses that analogy because it must mean that it was very, very common. Everybody understood the principle of the difference between hire and purchase when they were given the example from from the arena. It was absolutely pervasive in the ancient Roman world that the arena was taken for granted. It was part of the fabric of life and it permeates everything. And that's why we've got so many gladiatorial images. They're on lamps, they were on frescoes, they were on freezes, they were absolutely everywhere. And they were slaves, so they were worthless in social terms, in status terms. And yet, of course, they, garnered a following because they exhibited manly courage and all the rest of it. So I think there's a great deal that one can tease out about the Roman mortality and the Roman psyche from trying to understand the functionings of the arena. And on our course evaluations uh, where I teach, uh, one of the mandatory questions some years ago was um, um, something about how did this course change you not a question I invented, I'd never have the chutzpah to ask how my course changed anybody. But two of my students who did a course with me called The Roman Games uh, answered, um, this course taught me that morality is culturally determined. And I thought that was a really interesting answer. I'd never put it to them in those terms. I had simply said to them, to us, the arena is abhorrent. And I want you to leave that emotion outside, come into this and try and understand without condoning them, try and understand what the Romans thought they were doing. Because I always say to them, people will look back on our culture in a thousand years time. And some of the things that we take as fundamental pillars of of the way we operate will seem absolutely reprehensible. To future generations and so i wanted them to be able to see that gulf between us and the romans and try and understand it
2: wow i i this this the course sounds fabulous and i i wish that uh i could have been a fly on the wall just to be able to hear and see and maybe try to understand how they came uh to that conclusion which that's that's really flattering um so just as, as you were explaining your interest in the games and the spectacle of it all, it, it struck me almost because I had a, a very short flashback to when I was little, um, which wasn't horribly long time ago, but still long enough that when I was young, we still had blockbuster DVD, uh, VHS rental stores and um, similar things. And it almost sounds to me like they treated gladiators like a like a vhs tape that you could go to the store for entertainment uh and and rent and say okay well i'm gonna watch it it's gonna be great and then when i'm done it's disposable you take it back and someone else can go to do with it uh whatever they'd like um but it's almost likening to me at least sort of when they get hurt and then their value kind of goes down you're like, okay, well, I don't know what to do with this now. It's, it's almost as if when you put an old VHS tape in and then the, what is it? the, The film cords that are wrapped around inside when they get all tangled and then the entire thing becomes useless. And then even blockbusters would say, Oh, please don't return it. Just, throw it in the trash please just get rid of it we'll get another cop better copy um mm-hmm. and so just this funny parallel that i was just picking up um mm-hmm. it's 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 very striking to me um i would say is that does that sound like maybe something sort of comparable or am i just totally off with that image not
3: exactly you are right that um gladiators are property and they're therefore capital investment. And if your goods are so badly damaged that you can never use them again, then obviously you will dispose of them. But um, a very interesting find in the 1990s was a graveyard that was excavated by an Austrian team at Ephesus in Turkey. And near the ancient stadium, uh, they found uh, this cemetery that was full of skeletons with very serious wounds uh, that had actually healed over, uh, wounds so deep that they'd affected the skeleton, but you could see that they had healed and you could tell what they died of when there was an unhealed wound and that must be what had killed them. So at first they thought that these, this was a military cemetery and then they started to find gravestones and it was clear that actually it was a gladiatorial cemetery. And so from, um, that, that skeletal uh, material, we can see that the doctor Galen, who was the doctor in charge of uh, the gladiatorial barracks at Pergamum, was not um, telling a fib when he described how extensive his treatment had been of gladiators. We can see that it was only as a last resort that you would have abandoned a gladiator. They were too expensive, their training had taken too long and was too much invested in them to let the you know, a mere wound that hit the shin or the the rib or the skull or whatever uh, to let that kill the guy. So that, um, and it also apparently is the case that if you clean a wound, um, even a very severe wound, chances are the person might recover. And certainly, uh, the uh, forensic studies of these skeletal remains from Ephesus has vindicated that that um, that belief. So you are kind of right but that vhs tape would have to be really wrecked for somebody to 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 put it in the trash if it was okay
2: okay so then maybe it's closer to horse racing perhaps where if it gets hurt you obviously want to try to rehab it because you're putting thousands of dollars and hours into training if it breaks a leg so you you try very hard and then if it just can't um overcome that injury then as a last resort you put it down so Yes. yes Okay. Um, so I just want to turn back a little into if there were, if, if there were young people who said, oh, this all sounds so amazing. So interesting. I have the same, um, interests as both of us and said, I'm, I'm a high school student and I'm looking to go to university and and study this, but, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to find these things. Um, A a problem I've often noticed is the general accessibility because most programs I've just sort of noticed over my years aren't the best advertised. So for young students who may have an enormous interest in studying the ancient world, but just don't know it's there uh, to study, um, it was more of, you know, how do we... How do we do a better job of saying, hey, we exist, we're here, please, we, we want you. We desperately would love for you to come and, and take our classes and be majors um, mm-hmm. when so many would otherwise, maybe if they get lucky through a, a friend discover, oh, there's a mythology course. Oh, I'm gonna take that course. And then through that sort of um, discovery process, find that there is a classics department. Um,
3: it is the case that um, those of us who teach the ancient world have to be entrepreneurial and uh, advertise uh, what we're doing and I think um, the departments that are called departments of classics are at a bit of a disadvantage because it's such a vague um, um, term and people don't know that that means Greek and Roman antiquity um, and some departments of course are more explicit in their naming um, practices but um, we all face the same uh, problem, which is how to reach the students who, um, whether they know it or not, are looking for us. And one way to do that, of course, is to teach in general education programs um, and to be very present at all the kinds of um, um, fairs where the majors are advertised and and that kind of thing. Um, I think also uh, visits to to high schools is a very good idea where you're, making sure that the students realize that this is something that can be studied at college and that there are very many different uh, places where it may be hiding in college curricula. So either in formal departments or in in programs attached maybe to foreign language departments or even in the history department. So it is something that one has to excavate a little bit and try and find. And then um, comparative studies are also a good way to get people interested. I'm particularly keen on the idea that um, the ancient Greco-Roman world and the ancient world in in, uh, the Far East are comparable in so many ways. And there are now um, uh, books being written about the the, uh, Roman Empire, Han Dynasty, and all that kind of thing. And so I think we're we're likely to see more uh, sort of world history or global history in antiquity being generated uh, in, in probably in history departments, and that's a way of, of um, helping uh, students to see uh, connections across the planet uh, in these periods. So yes, I think um, I would encourage any uh, young person who's you know enjoyed a, um, a sword and sandals movie on TV or something uh, to find out uh, from their school counselor, Is there a college nearby that that teaches this kind of stuff? Because I'd be interested in doing it. And the other thing we have to do is market all the um, data that shows that humanities majors uh, earn well across their career. People think that a humanities major is not going to be a ticket to any sort of job, which is absolutely not true, because what you learn is how to... uh, think and reason and be articulate and be able to put building blocks of different um, uh, pieces of evidence together and be able to both write and speak uh, in um, a coherent manner, that the humanities teaches that, as you know, and we should be being much more forthright about those skills, the problem solving skills that you learn from the humanities, as well as developing empathy and all the kind of human emotional skills that will repair some of the rifts in society.
2: Of course, of course. And in terms of marketing to young students who are in high school or perhaps even young freshmen in their first year at university who are very impressionable and still have no idea and may not declare a major until junior year. there are so many different ways and ideas out there Um, and one of them that I'm particularly interested in and I would just appreciate um, what what you would think about this particular strategy is I in the past I've had conversations just with friends of mine former professors and I said I think anyone around my age is going to be particularly interested in the film aspect, oh, I I watched the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra and I fell in love with ancient Egypt or I saw the Brad Pitt Troy and I just, now I love ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always the problem of accuracy in, in portrayal in, in film and TV. Um, and so I don't know, is that maybe the best medium? Because I, I believe two things tend to happen. One, we see this glamorized version and then we think, oh, okay, well maybe all of it's going to be this glamorized version. And as we know, when you actually take the time to study and and read anything from those time periods, it's often just not the case. And so one, people might find, oh, well, if the reality is not quite as glamorous, maybe that's not what I'm looking for. And two, um, just from having two friends of mine who really loved, um, we love the ancient world, but instead of going into classics, they took this opportunity and seeing things through media as, oh, I want to become an actress. I, need, I want to go into the theater program because this looks so amazing. Instead of studying it, I actually want to just go dress up and, and pretend I am somebody back then. Um, so is, is
3: media really
2: actually handy or is it something we tell ourselves, oh, this might work?
3: No, I think uh, we ought to exploit uh, every connection that leads people to an interest in, in antiquity. And um, I think that the, the lesson is that however exciting and interesting it looks um, in Hollywood, it's even more interesting when you study it uh, you know, in its original context. And um, the Romans and the Greeks give us a wonderful opportunity to see both similarity and difference, that there's, there's so much that's the same. And then there's so much that's radically different from today and uh, getting uh, people to kind of drill down and start to explore these, these similarities and differences. I think is a, is a, it, it's just a safe space because it's so long ago and so far away uh, the ancient Greek and Roman world for us here in North America in the 21st century. It's a social experiment, if you like. One of my favorite uh, expressions is to talk about um, classical antiquity as a laboratory of the human condition, because I think that's what it is.
2: It can be whatever the individual wants it to be. I One thing that I always say to anyone who asks me about my background or my passion for the ancient world, and I say, well, it. It's an odyssey for one. Um, when you get into it, how you get into it, that's always going to be different. Why you're attracted to it and what keeps you coming back and wanting to learn more. Obviously it's very in- individualized. So um, it's, it's an odyssey and I think you can definitely make it into whatever you want it to be. If you are interested in learning more uh, about the ancient world, almost I'm very encouraging of uh, one of my friends who wants to be an actor um, took a serious interest in taking a lot of classics courses. And I, and I asked her once, I said, why shouldn't you be going and taking things in the theater department? If that's clearly what you want to do. And she said, well, I, I love the research aspect. I've always loved period pieces. And if I'm going to properly to the best of her ability, try to, represent these time periods and these people uh she said she really wanted a a really great idea of the context for which she'd be portraying characters so um i said oh it's so admirable i mean i think she ended up getting a double major in theater and classics because she wanted the background and the historical context, and then was able to take that, use that, have those research and thinking skills, um, and then apply it to whatever roles she may encounter um, in the future. So um, there's so many different ways you can get into and use the classical background, if you will. Um, And even for the younger uh, students, children out there who aren't, anywhere near being able to go to university yet. Um, I notice in our modern culture, we have so many things. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Lego just released the newest, biggest, buildable Lego uh, set and it's of the Roman Colosseum. It's it's like 9,000 pieces or something humongous. And when I first saw it, I said, I want it. I just, I want to have this giant Lego um, building in my house. Um, so I just see, we, we we take these cool aspects from the ancient world and then we just, we put them in Legos. We put them in, um, I, I think Playmobil has a set of, of Roman buildings and architecture and gods. Um, and you can honestly apply... Classics, anything to, to almost any field we have here. Um, I was just trying to think the other day about what modern professions, other than going into the field, um, may benefit from a classical background, um, and it's 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 quite a, a Herculean task to think about that. Um, from your perspective, if, if a student were to come to you, uh, as, as the chair of the, the department, you know, and say, I don't really know where I can go, but I definitely want to get the, the, the degree in, in classics, but, um, I need, I need help. You know, what, what would, uh, what would you advise a young student, uh, who doesn't maybe want to go on to graduate work?
3: Well, um, I think, Going you know, straight into uh, a profession is one possibility for uh, you know, the financial world or, or um, something like that. You can do straight from, from a classics degree. Um, classics degrees still have a, a certain a sort of fascination value, and interview committees often really want to talk about people's classics degrees and why they took them and what they learned. Um, and it's also possible, of course, with a, a good classics degree to get into a good law school or if you've been pre-med in good medical school um, or, you know, go off and do the MAT, become, become a teacher. There are all kinds of things. Our uh, majors at, at, uh, at the school where I teach go off and do all kinds of things. And we, um, one of the things we do is put our um, aspiring students in touch with former alums who can talk to them about, you know, five years ago, I left the classics program with my degree and this is what I've done with it. This is what it meant to me. Um, And I think that's often much more persuasive than us telling them that it's all going to be fine. You want to talk to people who've done that and gone out into the world and how they use their degree and what their degree meant to them. And I think we should be harvesting our um, alumni as much as possible. They are usually very, very anxious to talk to future students because they had a wonderful experience. So they want to make sure other people will as well.
2: Yes, of course. And just sort of thinking along those same lines in terms of engagement and um, almost um, just, just spreading the influence, whether th- through talking to professors or alumni or just on a, on a grander sense beyond talking to one student or, or whatnot. Um, so much of what I perceive to be influences from the ancient world um, influence our, our collective culture, our collective um, ideas on everything from morality to uh, aesthetics. And one thing I was just sort of reading about the other day was the influence of um, architecture and I wish I had a better word for this, but um, clothing styles, I suppose. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's a more professional term for that. Um, but just the influence of those things on our modern culture, where we see it reflected in all the government buildings. A lot of universities have architecture that are modeled after Greco-Roman buildings. But for me, one thing that really caught my attention was this sort of fascination with the the clothing aspect um i was i was watching a film just the other day and i i thought to myself huh everyone here seems to be wearing uniforms now uniforms they're they have so many different roles and and interpretations in the modern world so that's very broad but when i think back to my classical education and my experience i think back to well in ancient greece everything's very individualized nothing's the same uh there's there's a lot more freedom of, of almost sort of individuality there but then i i think about the romans and the empire um everything was sort of uniformly sort of um uniformity was brought in, essentially. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to just ask you a little bit about when when thinking about ancient spectacles, um, I often think of ancient Roman military parades and other events where the military figures um, are... are um paraded through and and venerated essentially for their their strength and their skill and their their wisdom and is that something that we've been influenced by that that has almost been passed down this sort of love of spectacle of military parades almost like the ones that we have here now in in the modern culture Um, i know several countries for celebrating um certain holidays, like to have military parades. Um, and I was just thinking about it as such an interesting phenomenon um, in its own right. Just why do, we, why do we do these? Why do we have them? Is this something that we got from the Roman Empire? I wasn't really sure.
3: I doubt that we got it directly from the Roman Empire. I think many, many cultures have had uh, this kind of tendency. And I think it, it relates to the power balance in society with societies with a very strong military want to uh, parade it and make sure that the, the population supports it and buys into uh, you know, the, this, this massive uh, sort of budgetary expenditure on, on um, the militarization of, of, of the society. Um, and the Roman triumph is something a little bit different, I think, because um, it is the triumphant general who is primarily being, being paraded. And it's a very curious mixture between uh, veneration of him and also an, an awareness that um, is, uh, his status uh, should not be overdone, that um, the you know the 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 foreign the, the foreigner is simultaneously, uh, uh, if you like. Um, exhibited as, as a trophy um, in, in the general's achievement. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a religious ritual, there's a very special uh, route uh, and um, it's, it's only uh, performed when a formal triumph is celebrated. So when there's been sufficient um, uh, victory to, to, um, uh, to justify this. And uh, the booty that the, the triumphant general brings back with him uh, is then uh, pledged uh, for uh, projects for the public good. So that's often temples being built to thank the gods, um, you know, for looking after us and making sure that we won. Um, and the Colosseum itself, we now know from the restoration of a of a damaged inscription, we now th- that know that the Colosseum itself was one of those buildings that it was vowed as the booty to be. Built out of the booty of a foreign conquest, and the only foreign conquest that's available at that period is, in fact, the uh, the, uh, um, the victory in Judea under uh, under Vespasian and Titus. When the uh, when you stand uh, on the via and look through the arch of Titus, which has in the uh, vaulted it, it's got on the on the sides, it's got the uh, reliefs of the um, uh, the booty coming back uh, to Rome from Jerusalem and the menorah is depicted there. You look through that archway and you see the Colosseum um, at the bottom of the of the slope, and the Colosseum is the realization of the booty that is depicted on the walls of that of that archway. So uh, there's the the uh, it's not it, to call it a military parade. I think would be uh, to miss the point or go past the point of the of the triumphal uh, procession uh, in um, in Roman society, and uh, the the religious aspect and um, the uh, the sort of the uh, foreign relations aspect of it is is extremely important.
2: Of course, yes. I often when when rough ideas get sort of passed down uh, a lot of the original meaning is just sort of forgotten or lopped off or hidden um, which is often very sad. Cause I do love learning about the the original meanings behind things. Uh, no one in the ancient world just did things to do them uh, for, for the most part. Um, a- another thing I, I sort of was thinking about was when I st- when I read the Aeneid um, during my senior year in college, um, the the obvious portrayal of Queen Dido as the very um, extravagant, wealthy, basically pinned with all the attributes that the Romans would later just sort of say, no, no, we don't wanna be associated with monarchy, with queenship, with kingship, it's all, We don't want that um our societies today we we do like to say they are very based off the the roman ideals of the roman republic and um we also don't really look kindly upon anything other than just a sort of um um, constitutional monarchy the way they do in the uk um so can, can we sort of trace our original dislike of monarchy and, and what they sort of stand for almost to the ancients and th- through them to their, their, their mythologies?
3: Um, I, I'm not sure uh, whether uh, that connection is direct. I think uh, the United States constitution has a great deal to do Obviously, with um, uh, colonization uh, by the British and the struggle for independence uh, in the 18th century. And uh, an analogy, of course, is the uh, Republican ideals of the ancient Romans. Uh, but that republic was not a success. I mean, it, it collapsed. You got these strong men rising and, and uh, overturning the rules and um, you know, marching on Rome and all the rest of it. And then what came out of that was essentially an autocracy. It was the establishment of the principate by Augustus um, and became a, a, a dynastic principle, which then, of course, petered out with Nero. And then you get that year of terrible um, um, sort of political instability in which there were four emperors in one calendar year, the year 69, and ultimately the, the last of them Vespasian Spatian triumphed and established a new dynasty. So um, I think if anything, uh, studying the Roman Republic makes one realize uh, not the strength of democratic principles but their fragility. And that's something that we really have to, t- have to remember uh, today. And um, the, the shell of the Republic was, was maintained, the, the semblance of Republican rule, but effectively, as I say, it was replaced by autocracy after the Battle of Actium.
2: Well, I I wrote an essay in uh, during my time in in, in university, and um, I think the question of the essay was: Did Augustus save or destroy the old Roman Republic? Um, and of course, I chose to write. No, he destroyed the entire thing. He just said goodbye to this, and I'm going to set up my own uh, way of doing things. And um, I don't remember a lot about what I wrote, but it was a it was a fun one to write and to, to think about. And um, that was the year I I finally read the Res Gestae, and um, and yeah, it, it was just such an interesting experience. But I would say just through. Through our discussion, I've just noticed that a lot of the overall arching themes that sometimes, sometimes we can make the connection, sometimes we can't, whether it's roughly based off of or maybe there's a small idea that was taken and, and changed uh, between the ancients and our, and our modern society, though, is it seems like no matter what you study or where you go, You are going to find some aspect of the ancient world tucked in there um, that can offer us insight or clues to how we go about navigating life today. And a lot of. I've just noticed that the, the, the common trend right now is sort of the defunding of the humanities in, in general, because we just say, oh, well, they're not really that important or eh, they're fun, but how will they help us solve world issues? And whether or not reading things like the Aeneid or the Res Gestae will, will actually help us, um, sort of to your to your earlier point where, studying the classics is really a, a study of the human condition. And and as that one student said, sort of a, a look at morality. Um, if those are the kinds of things that we're, we're saying, I would figure that it would make studying and funding the humanities even more important than ever um, to make sure we don't fall into bad habits. So we don't become the next failed Roman Republic. Um, it, it, with with all the troubles that, that classics departments are sort of confronted with today at least, and I, I don't know if it will be a, a continuing trend in the future, I, I certainly hope not. Um, is there anything we can do currently as professors, grad students, um, ambassadors, uh, if you will, um, who've studied the, the ancient world? What can we do going forward to sort of s- speak up uh, on behalf of, of all of our departments and say we are relevant and we can prove it? I mean, it's so hard to place um, monetary value on on something as subjective as the humanities. But you know, is there anything we can do sort of to, to make a case for ourselves and say we're, we're important? Please help.
3: I think we need to um, make sure that the very successful members of society who've had a humanities training or specifically a classics training talk in public and write um, in the in the media about their experience. I think ours is a society which looks to prominent people for guidance and for for models, and very successful CEOs and you know people in Hollywood and so on they they are the people who should, should be speaking up uh, for uh, a hu- humanities training, because they're the living proof that you can really make it to the top of society with that kind of background.
2: It's so difficult to or I have found that it's so difficult sometimes to ask successful people to get involved in, in something as thorny as, as funding uh, these programs just because of the all the different implications that could probably happen. And uh political ramifications, notwithstanding, um, but there's, there's such an obvious disconnect between, yes, I think people realize that it's important um, sort of on that very baseline level of, Oh, well, well, we've, we got to start or we learned or we, we understand how these things are connected. Um, but to, to encourage people, I, I suppose, to, I don't know. It, it it's such a it's such a thorny issue, um, or it can be. Um, just the 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 trend following the trend lines of society. Sometimes we have a lot of people encouraging um, the STEM fields or something, quote unquote, useful. Sort of the the trade school model, which I I will admit they're 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 very important, and we do need people to go into those those areas um but there's got to be a better way to tie in the usefulness of the classics with well you're going into trade school you're going to be an architect you're going to be a agriculturalist some something I i don't know something useful um useful um but but to even try to convince people to study something where they don't really see an immediate payoff uh, monetarily um, or they don't see the immediate value and well why should i learn this because those people were really really old and they don't really their problems are all different from mine and we have better technology so i don't think that you know this is right for me kind of attitudes um so to, to a young urban designer um, who says, well, we've got all the new technology. Why, is there a way to convince someone like that to say, well, no, 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 I, I think you can take an ancient um, architecture course or um, something um, that may not overtly seem connected to their desired um, career path.
3: Yeah, I, I do think that um, one has to emphasize uh, that uh, breadth of training is very important and uh, knowing the background uh, to to where we are today is also very, very important. And I, I do think that um, people who have become very successful in society uh, and have taken that route uh, are important models who should be held up uh, so that people can see, well, actually this is true. It's not just a professor trying to pull the wool over my eyes, but it's actually the case that uh, here is somebody who's convinced me in very articulate terms that what they learnt in college, which is apparently pointless, has been fundamental in training their attitudes, their way of thought, their problem solving ability, their articulate uh, uh, skills and so on. So I, I think we, we have to really, um, corral the people who have that model status and um, without them pledging a single cent of, in dollar terms, they can simply be spokespersons because society listens to people who are successful in society's terms. Successful in society's terms. And
2: do you think there is a space maybe for these more successful people to if, if they don't choose to do it themselves um, and speak up, is there a space for them to sort of lift up um, other young people who do have these backgrounds? So um, yes, advertising is important. And if you have people in the, in the film industry or, or any of these big architectural CEOs, big names, um, is there space for them to sort of say, well, I have a little bit of training, I'm not an expert, but I know this person here um, and I'd like to sort of give them a platform to explain what they do since they can better talk about it. And would people find that engaging? Would people say, okay, well, they're not this person. I very much admire. This famous person isn't going to talk about it, but if they suggest I listen to this thing or read this, whatever. um, Do you believe that that, that may be a way to, to get people interested? Just just sort of stepping back and giving someone an actual expert airtime.
3: Yeah, sure. If then the name of that uh, well-known person is, is behind them, absolutely. Ted talks, things like that. And also if people are very successful in monetary terms and have you know, made a lot of money, they could fund a scholarship for somebody who is uh, from a disadvantaged background to study uh, one of these ostensibly pointless subjects, which would then ra- ra- raise them up um, and give them the tools to to be successful in society. So people who are not willing to put their name out there might be willing to put their pocketbook out there. You never know.
2: Yeah, of course. There are so many different ways that it, it's fun to just sort of theorize. How do we get the word out? How may this work out? How can this happen? Um, and of course, the answer is we don't really know. We just have to find people hopefully who'd be willing to, to help us out. Um, and so just to, to um, wrap everything up, uh, at the end of each podcast, uh, as I mentioned before, I like to have each guest read uh, the poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley, um, just because I find that it's such a, a gorgeous poem uh, and it's, it's still so relevant. Um, And it just, it has so many different messages. And I I like to understand how people think.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
3: I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away I think
2: it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous poem and as as uh, uh, as a as an expert on on poetry, obviously this isn't um, ancient Roman poetry, but just, just as an expert with, with poetry in general, um, what is this poem trying to say to us? Is, is, there, is there anything about what the, the meter it's written, the length, or just the incredible visual description in it? Um, is, is that the, the key to understanding the poem or is it more in just the, the sort of metaphorical value of it underneath?
3: It's a sonnet and the structure of the sonnet, the 14 lines is one of the most perfect articulations, I think of human thought in the English language. And it's so condensed um, and the the rhyming schemes are so um, seductive, if you like, that you're led to um, the the conclusion which is the vanity of human ambition. And all of that uh, grandeur and boastfulness has now been reduced to shattered stone in the middle of a desert. So, what was the point of it all? That's really, I think, a, a very powerful uh, message from this poem.
2: And in your opinion, what makes this? one of the most famous poems why this poem rather than the secondary version because most people when they think of ozymandias they will think of this the Shelley version uh, and not pe- not many people i know know of the sort of second lesser version uh, as i like to call it um
3: well it was all bred of those discoveries in egypt in the in the 19th century. Oh, am i in the right century the 19th century and um it was also a competition. And um, I think the, the excitement, it's the beginning of archaeology, uh, discovering these things, digging them up. It's a, a, what you find of ancient society, this poem is saying, is just a few shattered scraps. Um, it must have been a, a wonderful sense that we are now able to discover these things and look what became of them. It, it, it tells you something about the fragility of human society, I think. And this poem, I mean, it's Shelley, so every word is in the right place and every uh, rhythm is correct. And it's really, I think a wonderful encapsulation of, of that uh, sense of, of um, yeah, human fragility and um, uh, the, the vanity of human ambition.
2: And obviously, the poem is very deep. So, any anyone who's had training in the classics, anyone who perhaps just loves literature uh, during their time in university, is going to just find the meanings and the depth to it and, and love and, and love reading it. Would this be a, a good poem for perhaps younger younger people? Would I be able to? take this poem to, to my sixth grade class and get as much out of it? Or or is it a, a bit too sophisticated for perhaps a seventh grader?
3: I don't think it's too sophisticated. I think um, most uh, children of that age would relate uh, to um, the, the sort of the emotive quality of the rhyme scheme and and the rhythms. And I think the message is, is very straightforward uh, in this poem. and. Um, I think the, that uh, children of that age are sufficiently uh, mature to be able to appreciate uh, the, the sort of the passage of the years and how, how um, kind of, I suppose how very ephemeral um, the, the survival of culture is. And that's an, a, something else that comes through in this poem.
2: Well, that's a, a beautiful note to end it on. So I just wanted to thank you again so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Um, it, is, it has been a pleasure learning more about the spectacle of the ancient world and from the the Roman side. and And just sort of, I wanted to also thank you for bearing with me as I my, my jumbled complex of a brain sort of tries to figure its way out, navigating the different influences uh, from the ancient world onto the modern world. So thank you. Thank you so much.
3: You're most welcome, Lexia. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for your thank project. You.
1: Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land.